What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and we discuss how those subjects bubble up into our popular culture and storytelling. As always, I am very, very, very excited for this week's Midnight Myth, and you know why? It is arguably my favorite month of the year, October. October is just great all of so we're in Pennsylvania in the great country of America, the United States of America, and Pennsylvania is so named for its woods. It is a very wooded state and this is the part where Pennsylvania becomes gorgeous. The sort of green and amber and brown and gold that you see in the leaves takes my breath away. It's a reminder that fall is here. Summers in Pennsylvania are relatively brutal and crushingly hot. The heat has broken. Fall is starting. Great beers are available in the stores. Football is back. It's time to make chili and wear flannel and everything that's right in the world. And we need to celebrate October here at the Midnight Myth. So here's what we're doing. We have concocted a season of October. A witch's brew, if you will. A slew of episodes inspired by, and in part, our October mood. You know, October ends with arguably the best holiday in Halloween. One of, if not the best. One of, if not arguably the best. And Laurel and I love Halloween. I love the opportunity to put on a costume and pretend to be a kid and stay up too late on a school night. I love it so much. So we have a slate of episodes coming this month that are going to be inspired by our fall mood. And let's be honest, the world is awful right now. If you turn on the TV or you launch whatever news app you have on your smartphone or tablet, there's nothing but bad news happening. And so why not find a way to have some joy and talk about stories that inspire and motivate and impassion and entertain and honestly distract And that's what we're doing. So our first episode is we are going to be talking about Pirates of the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending upon how you want to pronounce it. And the reason we picked this one is, one, it has pirates. Two, it has also kind of a ghost story as well. There's even a point where one of the characters says, yeah, best start believing in ghost stories because you're in one. It's about a haunted, evil 
cursed ship and these cursed pirates who by night turn into skeletons. And we thought, how better to kick off our October season than talk about this movie? Yeah, I am super excited for this whole slate of episodes. Typically, we'll only do one Halloween episode a year. And we were thinking about it and we had already identified what our Halloween episode was going to be. But then we kept having more ideas being like, should we talk about this instead? And then we were like, wait a second. Yes. And why don't we have four Halloween episodes to celebrate all the weekends in October? We are going to take a break here in the middle of the month. Uh, So watch out for that. And we'll be announcing all of the episode topics and our break week uh, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. So keep an eye out for more information from us. But we are super excited to bring you this pirate ghost story, some really true uh, deep horror and some sci-fi that takes place at Halloween and also some like classic cult midnight movies. So it's going to be the whole gamut of Halloween-esque spooky season um, discussions. And we're really, really excited. Yeah. And honestly, we posted that we were going to be doing Pirates of the Caribbean. And the response from all of you Midnight Myth listeners was tremendous. So everybody's excited for us to talk Pirates of the Caribbean. You kind of mentioned the Twitter and Instagram. Do you got any other plugs there? Oh, yeah. So definitely keep up with us on social media. We're at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. We're at Midnight Myth Podcast on Instagram, and we're on Facebook. You can also head to our website, midnightmyth.com, for more information and blogs. Uh, That's also where you'll find a link to our Patreon and our merch store. So those are places where you can support us uh, monetarily or financially if you have the extra change. But if you can't spare the change for us, please at least consider leaving us a five-star rating or a review because that really, really helps us get out there and stay on the charts. Uh, So that's all I got. Awesome. So let's start with the briefest of brief recaps. Pirates of the Caribbean is a movie made by Disney, came out in 2003? Oh, three, yeah. 2003. And it starts with a ship of His Majesty's Royal Navy uh, sailing to presumably Port Port Royal, And a young Elizabeth, who is singing a song about pirates, then she discovers, amongst a burning ship, a young boy named Will Turner, who is floating off on a log in the ocean. They fish Mr. Turner out, and young Elizabeth discovers that he has a pirate gold medallion, which she keeps fearful, fearing that he might be a pirate and that he might get hung for his piracy. The movie then flash forwards to young Elizabeth and William, now young adults, Elizabeth being the daughter of the governor of the colony and Will being the local blacksmith. Everything gets a little wacky when Captain Jack Sparrow shows up and Elizabeth, uh, in a corset, falls into the ocean, which releases a kind of shockwave from the gold medallion she still wears around her neck. Jack Sparrow ends up jumping into the water to save her, and he ends up trying to escape from the British uh, army, who identify him as a pirate, leading up to Will and Jack meeting in the blacksmith hut and probably one of the best sword fights in cinematic history. Easily one of the best sword fights in cinematic history between Will and Jack and Jack wins because he's willing to cheat to win. After all, he's a pirate. That shockwave ends up summoning the Black Pearl. Turns out this is Jack Jack's ex ship, and the Black Pearl is commanded by Captain Barbosa. He and the crew, having stolen a bunch of Aztec gold, have been cursed by the heathen gods that they cannot live nor die. 
by moonlight, they are shown what they truly are, living dead, living skeleton pirates. They end up capturing Elizabeth, thinking that she is the daughter of Bootstrap Bill, Will Turner's actual father, and they take her to the Aztec gold, and that pirate medallion is the last piece of Aztec gold, and they try to lift the curse by spilling some of Elizabeth's blood onto the gold. Since she's not actually Bootstrap Bill's daughter, this curse ultimately fails. Lots of hijinks and adventures happen. Long story short, Jack and Will end up fighting Captain Barbosa, and they end up spilling a little bit of Will's blood onto the gold, lifting the curse, just as the undead pirates are about to destroy the fleet and all of the, uh, the British army. The pirates then surrender, and Jack is captured. Having been captured, he's about to be hung. The last scene is Will deciding that, A, he declares his love for Elizabeth, and B, he will do his best to save Jack from his fate at the gallows. At the very end of the movie, Elizabeth decides that she is going to stand with Will and Jack. The governor ends up pardoning Elizabeth and Will for their crimes, and Jack Sparrow escapes to the Black Pearl, given one day to try to outsail the British fleet. And really bad eggs. And really bad eggs. Drink up, me hearties. Yo-ho! Excellent recap. There is so much to get, and it's such a, a swashbuckling adventure that like everything that happens in between are these great sword fights and these wonderful comedic moments, uh, drinking rum on the beach and singing pirate songs. Uh, it's just an excellent and fun uh, adventure upon the high seas. Well, the movie came out in 2003. There's a surprisingly large amount of plot in this movie, which is not a very long movie. You know, like yeah, it's, it's like a little over two hours. Yeah. Well, what do you think? We've just recently rewatched it. It had been a while. The movie is certainly, you know, almost 20 years old at this point. And so here's the, the Midnight Myth starter question. Laurel, does this movie hold up? I think it holds up exceptionally well. Yes. This is one of those movies that I could kind of put on any time and have, have a great time watching. It never gets old. There's always fun to be found. It's always fun to watch the sword fights. It's always fun to watch Jack Sparrow being Jack Sparrow. It's just a really rocking good time. Um, but it's funny, the movie itself, when it came out, I, I can still remember being in the movie theater and seeing the trailer for the first time and being completely baffled because this is 03 and I'm 13 years old. So I'm at like the peak of my irony. I'm at the peak of my like punk detached, apathetic self. And I see this like swashbuckling adventure that does not seem to have any dose of subtlety or irony about it. The line, you best start believing in ghost stories, you're in one, is really in that trailer. And I thought that was so stupid and cheesy, I couldn't even believe it. And then I found out it was based on a theme park ride of all things. So I was like, what a, what a ridiculous idea. And then of course I went and saw it in the theater and w was just completely love struck by this film. And I think a lot of us were, it took me aback and it ended up making pirates really cool for a while, even though it looked like the least cool thing in the world to me. Uh, so I, I had to eat my words about that, but what a great, what a great movie. It's still fun. It's still funny. It's still high tension. It's just excellent. Yeah. My first exposure to Pirates of the Caribbean was literally at the Disney World ride, which I have been on several times and was taken to as a child. 
um, and what thought it was the coolest thing ever. And it's just a slow moving boat on like a motorized rail with animatronics, right? With animatronic pirates doing pirate things in a cave. And that's it. Now there are parts of the movie that are ripped directly from the animatronics. For example, the scene with all of the pirates in a, in the jail cell and trying to get the dog with the key totally ripped directly from um, the ride. Then the scene in Tortuga when they're there and there's the woman putting their dress over the man's head. That is like a total recreation of the actual ride. That is an animatronic like scene in the ride as you're going through it. So they really did base this movie off of a Disney ride, which if you think about that from a premise standpoint, that should fail every time. Oh, yeah. That's the worst idea ever. I mean, literally ever for a movie. People seem to like this ride. Why don't we turn it into a live action movie and hire Johnny Depp? I mean, the emoji movie is probably the worst idea for a movie ever, but you're not too far off base. And yeah, Johnny Depp was such an interesting casting choice there. And obviously there are like tons of problematic things to discuss when it comes to Johnny Depp today. But at the point when he was cast in Pirates of the Caribbean, he was an indie darling. Like he was Tim Burton's boyfriend. He was like in all of the like really small independent movies. He was in like Benny and June and stuff like that. And people loved him for that, but he was not really a box office leading man. And this kind of cat catapulted him to new, new heights and stardom. Oh yeah. Well, he was an A-lister in 2003, no doubt about it. He'd start in blow. He, he was sure, but he, this, this was like next level. Suddenly he was able to command the box office. Well, this made the pirates of the Caribbean in this movie, turned a theme park ride into a smash hit phenomenon, one of the most successful film franchises out there in like a pre-Marvel universe. Like it was the first like major cinematic universe. And I, th I think they're still making yeah. these movies right now. Yeah, there are five of them and I think... The sixth one is in the works. I could be wrong about those numbers. I still don't even remember how many of them I've seen because let's be honest, after the first and maybe the second one, they start to get really forgettable. Uh, and we're only, uh, naturally, we're only going to talk about the Curse of the Black Pearl in this particular episode. But yeah, they are just cranking these out. Well, and I generally agree. I think this movie holds up. Even some of the digital effects when, especially when it goes from live action to skeleton. So when it shifts from a live action to a computer animation for 2003, that was amazing. And here we are in 2020 and it still looks very cool. Yeah. It still looks pretty good. And so many parts of this movie are just of the highest quality from the set design. All of the acting in it is great. Even Orlando Bloom is great. In yeah. This. <laughs> Even Orlando Bloom is a little bit more than a glass of warm milk in this. The action is fantastic. The, what, the way it blends in humor is great. Johnny Depp based his character off of Keith Richards, the guitar player of the Rolling Stones. And Pepe Le Pew. That's just insane. What, like... I just don't know how that happened and how that was allowed to happen. I'm not sure why it works, but man, it works. Yeah, it's inspired. It's one of those kind of like Beetlejuice moments where you you see the guy come on set and then he does this. And that's not what anyone would have imagined that you would do with this character. But now it's just kind of burned into the popular consciousness. 
Absolutely. So we agree. This movie holds up. This movie is so much fun. Let us turn our eye to the Midnight Myth analysis now. Where would you like to begin in the discussion of this movie? There's a lot of layers to unpack to this. What do you think should be our entry point? Well, I tend to believe that the best way into understanding this movie, and I know that you did a lot of research on this front, is to talk about pirates. Uh, I think we all have an image of pirates in our mind that maybe this movie solidified for us, or maybe Pirates of Penzance or some other early classic swashbuckler solidified for us. Maybe we read Treasure Island or saw one of the many film adaptations of that, and that's how we see pirates. But I'm really curious how close that is to the real history, how much romance is a part of that, uh, and how how far we have evolved that from what really happened on the high seas. So yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I did do some research. So I read most of, I didn't have time to complete, The Pirate World by Agnes Constam, a historian I had never heard of before, was well-reviewed on Audible. And so I listened to most of it and got through all of the chunks that are going to be very relevant to our discussion here. I'm going to caveat this. A lot of our historical segments are areas that I am pretty knowledgeable on and have done a lot of extensive both primary and secondary source studies on. While I highly recommend this book if you're interested in learning about pirates, I'm by no means an expert on this area of history. So reading most of one secondary source doesn't give you a lot of weight, but it did teach me some interesting things. One, piracy is really, really old. As soon as humans figured out how to maneuver on the seas, there were pirates. There were pirates dating back from ancient Rome even before. And wherever you have a lot of commerce on international waters, places in between borders, there have been those that have sought to profit and gain from piracy. An act of piracy is defined as someone using a ship to attack another ship with the interest of loot plunder. That plunder could be the ship itself. That plunder could be what the ship is is transporting. That plunder can be the crew, which you can then sell off into slavery. But if a ship attacks another ship with the act of plundering, it's an act of piracy with one important caveat. There's also a thing called privateering. Now, privateering is when one ship attacks another ship with the interest of loot, but a privateer is doing it under orders of an actual government. Now, this really started happening in the late Middle Ages into the early modern period. The first uh, major European empire to have massive colonialization in the Americas was the Spanish. And the Spanish were, in fact, very greedy for gold. So they were out there conquering the Aztecs, mining, stealing, and plundering gold themselves. And they were had to transport this gold back to Spain. The only way to do it was through ships, and it's a long way from the New World to Spain in a ship. So they had these massive, long supply lines crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Now, piracy, as we know it now, and as we think of it in the romantic sense, really started then with a group of uh, British privateers known as the Sea Dogs. And the Sea Dogs had markers from Queen Elizabeth. So a marker is when they say, when the uh, government says, I'm going to invest in your privateering. You are going to be an official privateer, which means if you get captured by the enemy, they are expected to treat you as an enemy combatant and not a pirate. 
This is significant because a pirate gets hung immediately. In the late Middle Ages, up into the uh, 18th century, a pirate would have to, when caught, would have to prove their own innocence. They were assumed guilty, right? And that's something that we do see in this movie. He's got a pee on it. He's a pirate, so we just have to hang him. It's the pirate's job to prove themselves innocent, which is really hard because most pirates were illiterate and had no idea how to argue in front of a court. So most pirates, when caught, were instantly or very quickly thereafter hung. Now, these English privateers, the Sea Dogs, were really successful in disrupting the gold lines and supply lines of the Spanish um, Empire. But herein was the problem. The Spanish, when they caught these privateers, they branded them as pirates and executed them on site. This helped inflare the tensions between the English and the Spanish, which would ultimately lead to all-out war. After that, then you have the era of buccaneers. Buccaneers were largely French and Dutch privateers doing the exact same thing about a generation after the Sea Dogs. They are disrupting the Spanish um, Empire's colonialization efforts, and they are trying to raid to get to that sweet Aztec gold that's being plundered from places in Latin America and South America. The Buccaneers, that is the time when Tortuga becomes a den of piracy. As we see Tortuga in the movie, it's not too dissimilar to what it was. It was not officially claimed by any of the European imperial powers. It was very international, and it was a trading bed for pirates where they would go recruit other pirates, trade pirate goods, drink their, you know, their plunder, and maybe if they were lucky enough, meet some of the local women. It's sort of the most Isley cantina, right? It's, it's kind of that uh, outskirts. It's not really part of anybody's purview. And so there are some unsavory types who might work there or who might work out of there, but nobody really has control over it. So you can go and get your unsavory things done. Exactly right. And the era of the Buccaneers is the area where Tortuga and Port Royal, Royal, wow, I can't say that, are hotbeds of piracy. And Port Royal is in Jamaica and Tortuga is off the coast of modern day um, Haiti and then the Dominican Republic. It's in a city on an island. Nice. And the era of Buccaneers, same thing. The French were trying to disrupt the Spanish Empire, so they gave markers of privateering. They recalled themselves the Buccaneers. Some became incredibly rich, and it ultimately led to all-out tensions and warfare between the Spanish and the French. The Golden Age of Piracy, so coined by an English author by the name of Captain Johnson, he wrote this book in the late 18th century, so the late 1700s, and he he coined the term the golden age of piracy, which is the era of time after the Buccaneers. No one knows who this Captain Johnson was. He seemed to have a great knowledge or she of the sea was able to describe how ships worked really well and claimed to have all of this knowledge of all of these famous pirates, what they did and what they didn't do. And a lot of it historically checks out. However, Johnson was highly invested in romanticizing what it meant to be a pirate during this time. The very term golden age of pirates hints at itself to be a romantic period. Roughly, this is the middle of the 17th century, right when this movie takes place. I'm sorry, 18th century in the 1700s, yeah, yeah, yeah. right when this movie takes place. So this movie is taking place in the golden age of piracy. A few things that it gets wrong, Tortuga, for example, is not a major pirate bed at this point. Um, but other than that, it's fairly correct. Now, 
what happened? How did the golden age of piracy happen? According to this book, the privateers that were English, French, and Dutch, when the balance of power shifted in the Caribbean away from the Spanish to the English, the French, and the Dutch, they no longer had need of the privateers. Since they no longer had need of the privateers, all of these privateers found themselves without a way to earn a legitimate living. All of these people who were getting paid by the government to plunder the enemy suddenly didn't have jobs. Well, they don't all just stop being sailors and stop being warriors. They had no legitimate means to make a living. What did they turn to? Piracy. So they kept doing what they did best, which was looting supply lines, stealing ships, and plundering in both uh, goods, monies, and slaves, and was a major issue for about a 30-year period. Well, when you think about it, too, if you're a privateer and you have this contract from a, a European government to plunder and to commandeer and to take loot from merchant vessels, you're probably giving a cut to that to the uh, the government, and then you you're are. taking a small cut of that for yourself, because obviously you're not doing this with your own interests in mind. You're doing this so that the government can be enriched. But then once you lose that legitimacy, you still have the skills, you probably still have the vessel, or you can get a vessel, uh, and you know how to sail the high seas, and you know how to plunder, so now you don't have to give a cut to the government. So I can see how that would be uh, kind of an advantageous position to be put in, even though it puts you at a, little, a lot more risk of uh, being captured and being immediately executed. You end up with more booty at the end of the day. It's actually, and you mentioned something, it's the opposite. The government's got a very small sliver of the plunder. Oh, wow. Yeah, so most of the privateers, for example, the Sea Dogs, were already from the nobility, were educated, were trained in the Navy, had their own ships, and then had these deals with the monarchs to use their own private ships. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And so they would keep the majority of the plunder... And they're taking all the risks. They give a cutback. And maybe if they needed crews or additional ships that the the monarchs like Queen Elizabeth might invest and be like, here are three additional ships. So instead of two, you now have five. But essentially, they privately own these ships. They're not a part of the official navy. And they're out there and they give a small cut back to the government, but keep most themselves. The benefit to the privateer is the chance of immense, immense personal wealth. And some privateers, in particular the Sea Dogs, were incredibly wealthy by the end of their careers. Some of the privateers, once it came out of favor, were already wealthy enough and retired and lived respectable lives. But most weren't. So most had to earn their living on the sea, and without a legitimate means, they had to then become pirates. Now, the most famous of which was Blackbeard, an American pirate. We've all heard the name. On the Queen Anne's Revenge. On the Queen Anne's Revenge, absolutely. And the, there are others. And their stories are just fascinating and violent and brutal. Most met very quick ends in this era. Combating piracy, no matter what era, is always the same. Strong military authority ends up trumping piracy at all turns whether this is in the Barbary pirates off the coast of North Africa in the late Middle Ages, to the pirates that Pompey beat back in ancient Rome. If you have a strong army or navy and you employ a series of carrots and sticks, so this is how it was ultimately snuffed out. 
Any pirate who wants to go straight will get an immediate clemency. Any pirate that's still out there on the waters will get killed. And what we see in the movie when Jack is, is going into town and there are pirates that are just being hung in public, that's absolutely very historically accurate. One of the ways you deter pirates is you kill the pirates and you leave their bodies out to hang. Yeah, so, it's like heads, heads on pikes. Yeah. So everyone knows this is the cost of doing piracy. It's also true that, you know, one nation's pirate is another nation's hero. Many times people were, were loved for being pirates on one hand or privateers on another. There's an element of perspective within the history of the pirate. What makes one a pirate? How does one become a pirate? What, what ultimately is this golden age of piracy? And in short, it's a bunch of privateers without the backing of a government doing the thing that they knew best, which were raiding boats. Pirates would also sometimes do sea raids. A sea raid is not considered an act of piracy. And the difference is a sea raid is you go on land and fight. So if you are trying to sack a city, like we see in this movie, when the Black Pearl first shows up at the colony and starts bombarding it with its guns, and the pirates take a boat to shore and they just start looting and pillaging, that's not technically an act of piracy. It would be a sea raid. So pirates would also do sea raids as well, very commonly, to disrupt and plunder and try to take as many prizes as they can. You know, the interesting thing about this movie is how well it captures the romantic spirit of this with a little bit of historical peppering. I would not in any way, at least based off of this one book, say it does justice to the actual golden age of piracy, um, except in this one respect. The golden age of piracy lives on because it became narratively profitable. People wanted to see stories of swashbuckling buccaneers with adventure who were handsome and romantic and were bucking the men living off the high seas and loved the adventure aspect of it. However, the real life of a pirate is probably anything but. It's probably brutal. It's short. You have long bits of sea where you might not have food or water. There's commonly diseases among them. And ultimately, you are desperately trying to eke out whatever kind of living you can. And usually, you're getting captured and executed if you don't die on the open waters. Yeah, there's a number of times uh, during the movie that we we hear a sort of romantic philosophy of piracy espoused, especially by Jack, uh, who talks about what a ship is, what the Black Pearl really is, its freedom, uh, this opportunity to be a legend, to be great, and to be considered the greatest pirate in the entire world. These are things that probably real on-the-ground pirates were not so concerned with. They were not really interested in eternal glory. They weren't on the seas because they wanted freedom. They just wanted to get rich. But we hear Jack saying things like, uh, you know, it's freedom. It's living outside of the boundaries. It's living outside of polite society and being your own man uh, because that is associated with that romantic view of pirates. I think this is all super fascinating, and I'm really, really grateful that you were able to learn so much about the golden age of piracy. You mentioned that that only really lasted about 30 years. Uh, and while there were kind of uh, similar uh, traditions on either side of this, that what we really think about as when pirates were active on the seas was a very, very short period of time. And it reminded me of another kind of iconic um, uh, archetype that we've talked about on the podcast before in the cowboy, 
which is another sort of uh, ambiguous morals, like really uh, on the outskirts of civilization kind of archetype that is really romantic and really accessible and really exciting to uh, the narrative mind, but was a very, very brief blip in history that these people were actually particularly active. So it's an interesting thing that we love to grab onto these really exciting, uh, tiny moments in history to romanticize. I mean, if I could go back in time and live a life of adventure and magic on the sea and have to answer to no one and get hordes of treasure, I mean, that sounds awesome. It does sound kind of awesome. (laughs) As long as you're not, you know, getting tossed about in a storm or seasick. I have seasickness, so I'm not very attracted to that idea, but... Yeah, or killed in a battle or, you know, marooned on an island. So things that you see in this movie that are fun. scurvy, yeah. So Jack gets marooned on an island. That actually happened. There's several instances where ships would get, where the pirate ship, there'd be a mutiny and they would maroon the captain on an island and just leave them there to slowly die. So there are things like that that they obviously did their research on and modeled some of the plot points and things off of actual pirates, which I think is great. But ultimately, piracy, and both narratively and historically, it's about ordering and boundaries to me. It is about having a order by which you say, this is how warfare is done on the seas, and this is how crime is done on the seas. It has to be defined by those in power, and it has to have a place where it starts and stops. This is where it's safe. This is where piracy will come and get you. And it has to be a civilization demarcation. Here is the areas in which England has sway. Here is the areas in which there are the Spanish have sway, and here's the areas where no one has sway and where the gold is. And once you are in this space, in between the ordered and the civilized, you have the natural and the anarchic. And once you're in anarchy, then there are no rules. Then it's okay for the king or queen to sponsor a pirate to disrupt a trade route to hurt an enemy, even if that hurt is marginal at best, or sometimes Maybe it is also significant. Some have argued that the amount of privateering or piracy, depending on your perspective, on the Spanish Empire was a huge factor in its ultimate decline and collapse because it ended up costing more money to maintain the colonies than they were able to bring in, which had them retreat. When's the last time the Spanish had an empire? It's been a while. It's been a long while, and piracy is potentially one of the reasons Obviously, when an empire falls or retreats, it's very historically complicated. But some have argued, as this book does, that the privateering slash piracy against them was a major cause. If you're planning on X amount of revenues to maintain your empire and those revenues are taken from you, you collapse. And so in this, I see the borders, the order the lines in between where you can have an orderly battle and an orderly war versus the the spaces where pirates can maintain. Piracy can only exist absent the order brought by a legitimate government. It's interesting how brute force can be wielded by a pirate and it can be wielded by a navy. What's really the difference? It's where they do it, more so than anything else. Because if you're a privateer, you're operating within the law because a monarch wrote a piece of paper and handed it to you. 
But if you're a, there is no monarch doing it, you're now a pirate, you are now denied your rights of due process and are executed nearly instantly after being caught. And this may sound somewhat arbitrary, but it's that space between order and chaos that piracy can live. And this is true without history, throughout history and all of piracy. The difference with the golden age of pirates is one unknown historian chose to romanticize it. And thus the industry of piracy as a narrative, as a story, really took hold. But I find it's interesting. What's that space? And there's another type of story happening here in The Curse of the Black Pearl. And that's the ghost story. And the similarity is the ghost story operates in a similar kind of function in that space in between the natural and the supernatural. So on one hand, we have the order of the empire and the anarchy of the free world. And then the other hand, we have the natural world where natural phenomenon happened that's ordered, that's controlled through physics. That's known. That has alive human beings who are flesh and blood, who that if you stab with a knife, bleed. And then you have the supernatural. And the supernatural is in a cave. It's on the sea. It involves ancient gold. It involves blood rituals. And the supernatural is where the ghost story kicks in. I think this is a fascinating comparison that you're drawing between the pirate story and the ghost story and how uh, those two can live side by side so beautifully in Pirates of the Caribbean because they're really the same kind of story. They are stories about uh, entities or people who live within a nebulous, ambiguous space that is not defined by the same kind of order or politeness or civilization that we're comfortable with. It pushes us out of our comfort zone to confront something that we're not sure how to really handle. So I think that's an incredible, incredible comparison. And, you know, it's not the first time that pirates and ghosts have lived side by side in the same kind of story. And I think we owe a lot of that to the fact that being on the sea, being a, a sailor or a shipman of any kind, whether you're a pirate or you're on a merchant vessel or you're in the Navy, you are dealing with, as we've talked about in a few episodes before, the greatness and vastness of the unknown ocean, the deep and whatever lies within the deep. Uh, you're dealing with the vicissitudes of weather uh, and how the wind itself can push you one way and then another way and then completely change your fate. You're dealing with a vast wealth of mythology as well because you have uh, the classics that say that the, the oceans are determined by uh, the will of Poseidon and Triton and the four winds. So you have a lot of this kind of supernatural and mythological soup stirring up the superstitions of those who spend time on the water. And so it's kind of natural that the, the people who sail the sea would come up with ghost stories. I totally agree. And the sea has long been a sense of fascination and wonder. And those who are able to traverse it have always uh, stereotypically been a little more superstitiously inclined because if you think about it, if you're making your life on a vast body of water, 
you realize that you got to have some element of luck here because if something goes wrong, you are out in the middle of the ocean. Your chances of survival drop dramatically. So whether you are sailing the ancient Mediterranean, trying to go on a trade mission between, uh, I don't know, Sparta and Troy, maybe transporting a princess, you're going to want to make sure that all luck and lady luck and every one of the deities and spirits that may be lingering are on your side because a bad storm comes that you can't predict and then suddenly you're never heard of again. And where the ghost story fits in so perfectly with the pirate story is that it deals very much with the unknown and it brings a form and function to it. Because what do we see in this movie? What do we see the tug and pull with the characters? And it's all always about the code, whether or not to follow the code. What is the pirate code? Are they guidelines? Are they rules? When should they keep to it? When should they not? When is heroics what a pirate should do? When is cowardness what a pirate should do? And at the end of the day, they're all trying to put a semblance of order to this absolute raw natural world and in Pirates of the Caribbean, supernatural world. So the code helps bring in a semblance of order. But like true piracy, it's really just kind of a guideline. Yeah, it's almost as though we use these uh, superstitions. Like you've got a character like Mr. Gibbs who is constantly repeating superstitions. It's bad luck to bring a woman on board. Uh, it's bad luck to be singing about pirates on these waters. He's always telling us, no, 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 that's bad luck. And those things are us trying to impose what we can control onto a situation that we almost certainly cannot control most of. Like we can control how we react to the winds, uh, you know, which way our sails are pointing, whether we lower the starboard anchor, but we cannot control the ocean. It is completely uncontrollable. And that's the same thing with uh, the influence of the supernatural here. We don't have control over it. We just have to figure out how we're going to react in the moment. And so the superstitions and the, the code, the guidelines, are all this attempt at imposing order on something that really probably scares the crap out of us. And there were times in the golden age of piracy and the eras before where pirates would make up different codes. For example, if I'm on the seas and I die, but this amount of treasure is mine, I need that treasure to go to such and such. And usually, most of the time, they didn't have families. It would be another pirate. So you and a pirate would make a deal that if one of you dies, the other gets the treasure. And this is a way to make sure the treasure actually gets spread equity, equitably among all the pirates because there are, if you can't just kill someone and now that treasure's theirs. Nope, nope, it now goes to this next person. So they had ways in which they established a way to order amongst the anarchy. And the ghost story is fundamentally about a similar thing. There is a, a narrative, there's a supernatural phenomenon. It doesn't make sense. What does it do? It us, frightens us. It scares us. And the ghost story brings the ghost to heal and makes it conform to an order. So these ghosts have very strict rules that they have to follow. One, moonlight ends up exposing them. So they can't just look and act like humans and be able to behave like humans. Two, they aren't allowed to have any feelings or enjoyment or pleasure whatsoever. That's the punishment for their wickedness. So it has exposure, it has 
punishment, and then B, C, three, whatever number I'm on, there is a way to lift the curse, but it's incredibly difficult and bloody. You must return all of the gold you have stolen, and you must spill the blood of one of your pirates. And because of this, the coast is the curse can be lifted. So it is fundamentally bringing order to this supernatural phenomenon, a thing like a curse. It makes it understood, it makes it understandable, and it drives the characters through the narrative. I love that point. I think that's really, really well said. You know, there is a folkloric and legendary tradition that I want to bring into this conversation because I think it's the perfect melding of the pirate story and the ghost story, and that's the tradition of the ghost ship. Now, when we say ghost ship, we could be referring to a few different things. One version is we could be referring to real instances of ships showing up with no living crew or passengers on board, like the Mary Celeste, which is a real historical event where this ship was just floating and everybody had disappeared. Or we could be referring to a haunted supernatural vessel that appears uh, in a sort of ghostly apparition. And that's the second definition that we're going to use mostly when we talk about Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, there's folklore and mythology of ghostly ships all around the world that date back to the ancient and the classical, just like piracy goes back to the ancient world. But we get a real explosion of ghost ship lore in, unsurprisingly, the 18th and 19th century, coinciding with this increased global voyaging, colonization, and right around the time that Pirates of the Caribbean takes place, the golden age of piracy takes place. Now, undoubtedly, you may not be surprised to hear that I'm bringing this up, the most famous ghost ship from folklore and legend is known as the Flying Dutchman. This, of course, makes an appearance later in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. We're not going to talk about how it's depicted in Pirates itself, but we're going to talk about its implications on the Black Pearl. Now, uh, the, the name the Flying Dutchman can refer to either the ship itself or the captain or both, kind of depending on which version of the legend you're hearing. But people were probably telling this story through like the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries before it was finally put down to paper by this guy John McDonald in about 1790. So it's definitely a piece of lore that's been floating around. And the story essentially goes that this Dutch vessel associated with the Dutch East India Trading Company had set sail on a merchant voyage. And like many ships, the route that it had to take took it around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa they started to notice that a storm was brewing. And so normally, if you were making your way around that passage and you saw bad weather, you would make port at the Cape of Good Hope and then you would set sail again when the weather cleared. However, the Flying Dutchman was captained by a madman. And he said, no, we're not going to make port. We're going to sail directly into the storm. Now, the crew was ready to mutiny because this was almost certain death to, to go right into the eye of the storm. It was just absolutely crazy. And then depending on what you're reading, either the ship began to speak or a ghostly figure emerged from the sea and began to speak to the captain and challenged him and said, are you sure? Is this really what you want to do? Are you going to make this choice and condemn yourself? Uh, and the captain says, yeah, oh yeah, I'm totally going to do it, metal, rock on, ride or die. Um, 
Not not a direct quote, but basically that's what happens. Wait, you're not direct quoting a legend? Not directly quoting a legend, in fact. Uh, and then the figure or the ship says, uh, if you do this, you will be condemned for eternity to sail with a ghostly crew of dead men. Uh, you will bring death on everyone that you see. You'll never be able to make port again. Everything that you drink will be as bitter as gall, and everything that you eat will be red hot as iron. And the captain responds back, amen to that. And they sail on into the storm. And so then usually in some of the legends, it's like swallowed up by a portal in the ocean, or they continue to sail on forever with a skeletal crew uh, in this sort of purgatory state and are occasionally glimpsed uh, in bad weather by people on the shore or by other uh, shipmen on the sea. So essentially, we're talking about a ship with black sails, crewed by the damned, and captained by a man so evil that hell itself spat him back out. Oh, I love that. It's a direct black pearl flying Dutchman. It's almost like the same story. Absolutely. But what's really interesting about this, at least I think this is kind of interesting, uh, the Dutchman is explicitly in the early literary material a merchant vessel associated with the Dutch government. It's not a pirate ship. It doesn't take on the uh, pirate association until Sir Walter Scott gets his hands on the legend in the 19th century. And that's when he starts calling it a pirate ship. And now today, we all think of the Flying Dutchman as a pirate ship. And so many of the sort of legendary conventions of it conform to that ideal. That's so interesting. And it's clear that this folklore has inspired the story of the Black Pearl. Right. And I think that the purgatory aspect of the Flying Dutchman story lines up really nicely with what's going on in the Black Pearl and helps to kind of tie in what we've been discussing, this sense of order and chaos or the sense of being in an ambiguous space in between. Uh, the the crew of the Flying Dutchman are being punished for their crime, this crime of hubris against the gods, against the seas, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they are being punished and they are doing penance. So were the crew of the Black Pearl. They were so greedy, they took this cursed gold and they used it to uh, buy all of this fine food and drink and pleasurable company and then all of that became unsatisfying to them. So they're doing penance and they are having to uh, atone for this crime of greed, this crime of pride, just like the crew of the Flying Dutchman. And until they reach you know, that penance, until they have done enough to atone for it, they will never be satisfied. And what's, I think, interesting about in both cases, we're looking at a crew of... Uh, of the undead who just want to die, too. Like, they don't want to come back to life so they can feel again. They just want some kind of order. They just want to feel some kind of satisfaction again, even if that satisfaction is the feeling of dropping dead. Uh, so I think it's a very interesting, uh, in interesting comparison that we've brought in here, where it's like, we're ready to make port, whether that port is you know, us being fully alive or us being just done with all of this. Yeah, that's a really fun and interesting point, and I totally agree with that. The end, the pirates, they want to lift the curse, and even if lifting the curse means that they die or that they surrender and are captured by the British army, and the British would presumably hang them all, 
that would still mean they're dead. That's still a better fate than living in between life and death for forever. You know, Barbosa says after he gets shot, I feel, I feel cold. And there's a sense of it's better to feel cold and dying than it is to feel nothing whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. It's finally something. Absolutely. Totally cool. You know, one other thing I want to bring up here, if you'll permit me. Please. Is I just want to touch on what the gold is and its symbolism in its symbolism, how it's being used as Aztec gold and it being cursed by the quote unquote heathen gods. Heathen gods, yeah. Uh so they mention a guy named Cortez. Now Cortez was an actual Spanish conquistador. After the discovery of the quote unquote new world, it's only a new world if you're from Europe to the people that live there, it's just the world. The um, Spanish went on a brutal colonization campaign, in particular against the strongest regional power in Mesoamerica, which was the Aztecs. Yeah, they were a massive empire. They ruled over, like, I think 10 million people at one point in Central America. They were a very powerful, very advanced civilization, both technologically, um, militarily, uh, economically, However, there were some things that they did not have, such as horses. They didn't have gunpowder, and nor did they have uh, armor in the way that the Spanish had. So the Spanish had a technological and military advantage over them and used this advantage to systematically destroy and near-genocide the Aztecs. It's important to note that the Aztecs were a pretty brutal overlord society, they practiced ritualistic human sacrifice and they subjugated anyone that stood in their way to form their empire. However, when the um, Spanish and the Aztecs first came in contact, in contact, the Aztecs attempted to make peace offerings and offerings of friendship to the Spanish in gold. The Aztecs were a very rich in gold society. So they gave some gold, which to them wasn't as valuable as it was to the Spanish. And it ended up having an opposite effect. Instead of making friendship, they're like, do they have horses and muskets or and armor? No. And they have all this gold? Yeah. Let's just kill them and take and the gold. And take the gold, yeah. In a form of, you know, brutal, brutal conquest. It's also important to note that the conquistadors did so under the papal banner, banner of the crusade. They were waging an official holy war against the quote-unquote heathen Aztecs and had the blessing of the Catholic Church to kill them with impunity and to take all of their resources in the name of defeating evil religions. And this had largely worked. The Aztecs are no more, and the Spanish colonized almost all of Latin and South America, and there's still a huge Spanish imprint on the Latin and South America to date. Now, what happens in this movie is that there is a chest of gold that was paid to Cortez to stop the slaughter. These things actually did happen, and that the heathen gods, quote, heathen gods, placed a curse on them. And this is an attempt to sort of counterbalance the colonialism and brutality that existed by making the gold itself a representation of evil, e.g., the thing the colonizers covet is the thing that will absolutely curse them. So you're plundering your violence, your technological warfare over a population will actually succeed, but the thing that you get from this 
will actually be your undoing. It will sow the seeds of your downfall. That's a really, really interesting point. And in this, we see that. Now, it's important to note that the era of golden age of piracy doesn't exist without Western European colonization. Piracy and colonialism are an interlinked historical phenomenon and an interlinked narrative phenomenon. If we understand the pirate as as operating on the fringe of the borders of order, so does colonization. Colonization is about going to the places without civilization and civilizing them by brute force, by conquest. We have the right to colonize you because we believe you are inferior innately to us. And by us colonizing you, we're not being greedy overlords. No, we're being civilizers. And what the Aztec gold represents to me is flipping that narrative and saying, no, it is, and then it's interesting they use the word the heathen gods. So they even use colonizing language about Aztec religion in the curse itself, which is itself a representation of colonization as inherently a wrong, a morally wrong endeavor. I am so glad that you brought this up because I'll be perfectly transparent here. When we started working on this episode, I thought the direction that I wanted to take my research in was to bring more light to uh, the stories of the Aztecs and to talk about that history, to talk about Cortez and the conquistadors. And I landed in a place where I was like, I think the gold is really a MacGuffin and they're using the Aztecs in a pretty shallow way uh, and and didn't necessarily do a whole lot of research on this movie uh, when it comes to the Aztecs. So why would I, uh, you know, take it to that particular place? But I'm really glad that you have brought this in because I think there is a way to read that as a critique. Um, and even if it's not truly baked into the story, even if this, the story itself isn't telling us that colonization is wrong, I think um, there is a way that we can read it that at least um, illuminates the consequences of colonialism. And we can't condemn an entire uh, global phenomenon with so many moving parts and say that everything that came out of colonialism was bad and it should not have happened, but we can absolutely acknowledge the very, very long shadow that colonialism has cast uh, especially on uh, communities that are not Eurocentric, and interrogating the way that colonialism has completely shaped the modern mind and the modern uh, the modern sense of the world. Like there is another way to think about things. Absolutely, and we're living with and dealing with the repercussions of colonialism on a daily basis. And those those repercussions are racial, they're environmental, they're economic, like they, it's it's in every aspect of civilization. Oh yeah, I mean, how were these colonial empires built largely by slaves imported from the transatlantic slave trade? Right. Right, and so we are still living in that racial reckoning in particular in America uh today. We still haven't figured out a way to rectify our colonial past. And we are still dealing with that. Now, this movie is not about colonialism per se. So I think you're right in saying it's a tough direction to to go into because you're dealing with colonial powers. Even the pirates themselves are colonial powers. Yeah. Even if they are outlaws to those powers, they are still a product of created by and there because of colonialism. And it's easy. The one thing that's easy to say now in 2020, looking back, the idea of a society possessing 
a technological or military superiority, meaning they are inherently superior to the another civilization and can conquer and kill and enslave that civilization because of it is wrong. Yeah, absolutely. That's the easy part. Yeah. Dealing with the consequences and righting those wrongs, that's the hard part. That's the long haul. Yeah. Yeah, that is absolutely the the hard part. And that's the part that it gets really messy. And it's important to note in stories that are only possible because of colonialism and because of what it happened, and the pirate stories are very much only possible because of it, you have to at least draw some attention to it and recognize that, oh yeah, the Spanish genocided the Aztecs and that created a supply line of gold, which created the privateers, which created the pirates. And there is a direct link in the history. And because pirates actually existed in the quote unquote golden age of piracy, we now have the wealth of pirate narratives that we have today, none more popular and none more important than Pirates of the Caribbean. I have a question for you um, about uh, the sort of reality of pirates versus the romantic version of pirates uh, that I'm not sure if your book fully illuminated or if you have any insight on this, but it's something I've been curious about. Um, when we think about pirates, we often think about you know, men with peg legs or with eye patches or with parrots that may talk for them because they've had their tongues cut out. Uh, there is certainly uh, an air of acceptance or diversity among pirate crews as they're depicted in Pirates of the Caribbean or Treasure Island or other pirate narratives. This idea that like you can be on a pirate crew no matter what you look like, no matter what you've been through, no matter how many limbs you have, if you have a disability or if you are uh, from a different race. I'm, I'm curious about the reality of that because it does seem to jive in some ways with the idea that we're on the margins. And so there is a, a more like democratic freedom of the seas will take anyone kind of ideal. But I'm not sure how real that was in the history of piracy. You know, in the book that I read, it's not a theme in the book whatsoever, which doesn't mean that you're wrong in that interpretation. You know, to be a pirate, you would have to be, you are enacting a naval warfare. And to enact a naval warfare, you do have to be of sound mind and body. You know, if your body is not working in a war, you're not going to be a very effective warrior, even if you are waging a quote-unquote illegal or pirate war it's still taking something by force under threat of violence. And in order for a ship to operate, it does need competent sailors. There are stories uh, in the historical record where the pirates were so drunk that they lost something they could have easily won, for example, because they were just too drunk. That's great. Absolutely. That definitely happened on more <laughs> than one occasion, which makes sense because they're pirates. They spend, yeah, there's no rules. Yeah, absolutely. They get completely wasted, and then suddenly the, the Dutch Empire shows up. You're like, oh, man, man, the... You know? <laughs> that's my good drunk impersonation. Yeah, that's what drunk pirates sound like. Absolutely. You know, it's also a violent life. So violent life, warfare leads to wounds. Wounds lead to long-term injuries. So things like missing a hand, missing an eye, missing a leg, these all happen when you go into combat. These, so I don't necessarily think that we should look at the romanticism of pirates as, uh, you know, anti-ableist, uh, pro-racial diversity, 
pro-gender diversity society that is more democratic. I think that's wrong. I think most pirates were brutal dictatorships with a lead pirate at the top. And whether it's the the privateers who are sanctioned by an army or it's the actual golden age of piracy, they're much more like Captain Barbosa in how they treat their men than they are like Jack Sparrow in which they, you know, because discipline is rough. You know, the tradition that we have in the Navy today of Marines is pretty fascinating. What Marines were, they were developed by the British, the modern version of Marines we have today. And they were the red coats that you see on a ship. And their job, they were essentially cops for the sailors. They were there to make sure the sailors behaved and punish them when they weren't. And if there was a battle, then they would take place in the battle and they would help fight. Now, obviously, today, the modern American Marine Corps is one of the finest infantry fighting forces on the planet. You know, so that's not what they do now, um, but that's what they did back in this time because discipline was so tough. Most sailors were impressed, which means they are forced into service. They're conscripted into service. They're not doing it by choice. They don't want to be there. And so you need brutal forms of discipline to keep it in line. So an idea, I think we do a disservice to the pirate history if we allow the fact that Johnny Depp seems like he would be a pretty fair captain and it doesn't matter if someone can speak or if someone is a man or a woman or if someone has a disability. These are all good things to have in the narrative for the sake of diversity and equity and inclusion. But I don't think we should think of the history that way. But I'm also going to caveat with not, I'm not an expert on that. Yeah, I I would be really interested to learn more about that. So thank you for sharing what insight that you have. I will say, um, you know, I just want to throw some praise here on, I think, how the movie handles uh, certain aspects of diversity and inclusion. Obviously, we have racially diverse crews on both of the ships, but also we have a really capable, like, really powerful woman character in Elizabeth and Kira Knightley is one of my favorite actors. So this was one of the first places that I saw her and was really blown away by her uh, and just an incredible character who starts out almost as a damsel in distress and then flips the script entirely and becomes the one who goes out to save her man, which I love. And she's also, uh, you know, she's got such agency and such cunning and such intelligence that she ends up playing Jack Sparrow who like Jack plays everybody. Jack's Loki, right? Jack is a trickster figure and he is constantly trying to manipulate and cause mischief. And she even outsmarts him at several junctures. So I have to throw a little bit of praise on Elizabeth and, you know, just share how much I enjoy watching her character grow. Oh yeah. She's Athena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she is she is a, a Athena, incredibly beautiful, skilled in the homely arts, but not afraid to pick up a spear when it comes down to it. Um, Athena, who's the goddess, the patron goddess of Athens. Athens, the great naval power of the ancient Greek world. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's a connection there. So she is very much an Athena-like character in the way that she is both beautiful, she's very much represents womanly virtues. And wisdom. She's and, very yeah. wise, she's very cunning, but she's also a warrior when she needs to be. So she operates like an Athena, and we have, uh, yeah, absolutely, Jack is like a a Loki or a Hermes. He, he is a trickster, or Mercury, for that matter. He's someone who is up to mischief and mayhem. And Barbosa is Hades. Oh, yeah. yeah. He is the god of the underworld. 
right? He is ruthless and cold and doesn't feel and has no compassion to, for anyone or anything, has no problem, you know, taking what he needs by brute force, will not give up a single soul under his command under any circumstances, no matter what, those sailors are his. And Will Turner is Orlando Bloom, pretty much the closest thing to a demigod on Earth. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, definitely. I love those mythological maps. We did not plan that segment. We just kind of No, those kind of just rolled with it. Yeah, we just improv that whole thing, everybody. Do you have any final thoughts on Pirates of the Caribbean? I had a whole segment on moral philosophy and existentialism in this movie that I think we're going to have to cut for time. Maybe I'll do a Twitter thread. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. About it. Midnight Myth. Um, Yeah, so there are some really interesting meditations about right versus wrong and morality happening, and I think they're really fascinating and wanted to explore. However, we just ran out of time. Yeah, so we'll definitely share those uh, through another avenue. Just keep your eye on our Twitter uh, and on our website. Whether we place that on Twitter or on a blog, we'll let you know. Yeah, it's probably going to be on Twitter. Yeah, awesome. And any last thoughts for you? Uh, Just uh, drink up, me hearties. Yo-ho. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Pirates, ye be warned. (laughs) 